0: Good morning. <sighs> On my way here, um, at Golden Lantern and Coast Highway, there was a woman crossing the street. She had her, uh, you know, earphones uh, or earpods, whatever, in her ears, and she is um, crossing the street just singing really loudly. And um, I mean, enjoying whatever she was listening to. And I thought that is very. Very lovely. Now, I'm not a judge of vocal quality, um, except myself, which I judge harshly. Uh, but I thought she had a beautiful voice. And I was just so impressed that she was that free, that she could enjoy her music and not care who who noticed. Until she realized that drivers were looking at her, and then she looked embarrassed. Closed her mouth. <laughs> but um, oh, if we could just. Loosen up a little bit, you know, not take ourselves so seriously. We might enjoy life more. The Lord be with you. Thank you. And I know that he is. Would you pray with me? Good morning, Father. We thank you for being here with us now. We know the troubles that we've had this past week. What we don't know is all of the troubles that you've spared us in the last week. Thank you for that. Nor do we know the end game of the troubles we have now, what you have planned to do in us and through us because of them. So we accept today exactly like it is, even as you accept us here this morning exactly as we are and we pray that from here the things that are on our hearts the people we hold dear the problems we're aware of in family neighborhood community county state nation our world that, that our prayers going out from here will reach your throne and then receive your response down into this planet And that you'll bring peace where there's war, food where there's famine, healing where there's disease, and hope, the hope of life in you and with you. And all these things we ask in the name of Jesus Christ who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, forever and ever. Amen. All right, we're going to go right into our quiet prayer. So... Take your deep breath, relax. Hello. Good to see you, Sam. (laughs) He doesn't want to be quiet. (laughs) No problem. Um, Howard Hendricks one time said that (laughs) Sunday school teachers working with three and four-year-olds, trying to get control of them, are working in total opposition to what the Holy Spirit is telling those kids to do. Move around, make noise, be seen, be heard. Uh, Let people know that you're here. So we we can appreciate that. All right. Be here, be now, be still, and know that he is God. This is going to be a little obscure. Genesis forty three eleven. Then their father Israel said to them, If it must be so, then do this. Take some of the choice fruits of the land in your bags and carry a present down to the man, a little balm and a little honey, gum, myrrh, pistachio nuts, and almonds. Take double the money with you. Carry back with you the money that was returned in the mouth of your sacks. Perhaps it was an oversight. Ten merit points for anyone who can tell me what the heck this is about. Jen? It's about when Joseph did the promise or gold or whatever and the other 12 letters and so they went back to the bottom. Uh Jacob. You almost got it perfectly. Okay, I'm still giving you 10 points. Um, Good job. Uh, I've dropped into a random chapter of a biography. And the little bit of dialogue that I read doesn't really mean anything to us right now, uh, but it will after I bring you up to speed. Uh, The subject of the biography is Jacob, whose name is also Israel, God changed changed his name. Uh, Jacob, the son of Isaac, the son of Abraham. His story unfolds as one long, complex, and contradictory road trip. It seems that um, this will eventually bring him before the Pharaoh of Egypt. And the pharaoh is going to recognize Jacob is um, rather mature. That's how my dermatologist put it one time. I said, what's this mole? And he said, don't worry, it's not cancer. That's just a mole that comes with maturity. (laughs) And I said, you mean aging? And he just smiled. Um, But uh, so pharaoh asked him, how old are you? And Jacob answered, the days of my sojourning And and that's the operative word here, my sojourning. He's always on the move. The days of my sojourning are 130. Few and evil have been the days of the years of my life. And they have not attained to the days of the years of the life of my fathers in the days of their sojourning. Um, I'm on a road trip. I'm a traveler, the son of a traveler. Who is the son of a traveler? We've always been nomadic in that way. What? drives his story forward is that he's repeatedly running from one person or another. And so he is uh, is being hunted, or chased, or threatened, and he has to vamoose. So he, he doesn't stay in one place permanently. Now, I want to give you a little bit of background, different kind of background, to appreciate Jacob's story. When modern anthropologists, by modern, I mean 19th, 18th, 19th, 20th century, when modern anthropologists began to look at other cultures around the world, they, um, they observed that every culture had rites of passage. That is, they had ways of celebrating important transitions, birth, death, marriage, or annual rites, uh, such as uh, the changing of the seasons, planting and harvest, summer and winter, and so on. These rites of passage uh, identified three phases. There was the separation phase. Now, the separation was they were being separated from their their group for a while, sometimes the rite of passage would take place in some desolate area where the the individual was all alone, um, or they were being separated from their old life uh, in biblical times. boys were typically raised by their moms until they were old enough to join their dads out in the field or you know in the workshop or whatever and That was an important transition. And so they had a rite of passage to recognize that. Um, uh, So it'd be a separation, a transition, and then uh, an incorporation, or I would say a reintegration back into the community, but as a different person. And they're treated as a different person. They're not treated as a child anymore, if if that's the case, or they're not treated as a single person anymore, and so on. Uh, These rites of passage, passages occurred in time and in space. They occurred in time, and you can think of bar mitzvah or bat mitzvah, um, that uh, the Jews celebrate the transition from childhood to entering the adult community with Bar Mitzvah, very big celebration in Israel. It's, it's fun if you happen to be at the Western Wall while a Bar Mitzvah is going on. The women are on their side um, as close as they can get to watching this, this young man who, with singing and, and prayers, carries a large scroll of the Torah around while um, uh, people are dancing. Men are dancing behind him, and women, women are throwing candy at him. It's a, it, it, it's a fun thing to observe. And as Americans, it is depressing how little we have in terms of rites of passage. How little we celebrate life. How we just kind of get up. I mean, we we do have you know certain rituals, like I hate Monday mornings. You know, but the, it doesn't get much beyond that. Or you know, season two of. Uh, lost in California. Um, but they, they also have rites of passage in terms of space or geography. That before anyone entered uh, a temple, they would have rituals of purification. So it's a recognition I'm going from this secular space in which I live my daily life into sacred space, and there's a transition. I cross the threshold. And, uh, and I prepare myself for crossing that threshold, right? And that, that ritual of preparation is a rite of passage. Now, the, the transition part, you know, the before, the transition, the after. The transition part has been termed liminal, liminal space. And you say, I have no idea what liminal means. Of course you don't, unless you... Remember your Latin, um, but you do know the word preliminary or preliminaries, preliminal. Uh, and in Latin, the, the Latin root for preliminary is um, before the threshold. So liminal is threshold, and before the threshold, you prepare to go through it. Um, the threshold. Can be a gate. It can be a doorway. It can be uh, one of life's transitions. Um, and if you think of a door, the when you cross over the, the door jamb or the threshold, right as you're crossing, you're not outside and you're not yet inside. It's a it's a space. It's like a nothing space, but an everything space. You are in between. So um, let's call it a transitional space between two worlds. Israel was taught to reverence thresholds in time and space. God told them, You're going to remember my law, you're going to write it on the doorpost of your homes and of your gates. So as they walk through the, the threshold of the gate, they're reminded of God's word to them. And then as they enter their home, they're reminded of God's word once again. He says, I want this to be in your heart. I want this to always be on, in your mind. I want it to be like, like, like something that you're wearing on your forehead, so you're always seeing it. Or you're wearing it on your hands. So whenever you do anything with your hands, you're aware of it. I want this to encompass your life. And, and in a sense, um, he, he is reminding them that the threshold is this sacred space. When God is giving Moses instructions for the temple, he says, Now, this is what you shall offer on the altar. Two lambs, a year old, day by day, regularly. One lamb you shall offer in the morning, and the other lamb you shall offer at twilight. And he goes on. It shall be a regular burnt offering throughout your generations at the entrance of the tent of meeting before the Lord, where I will meet with you to speak to you there. There I will meet with the people of Israel, and it shall be sanctified by my glory. Sanctified means made holy. God says, I'm going to make this threshold a sacred space, and that's where I'll be when the people come to worship. And I'll be there every morning when the morning sacrifice is offered and every evening. Okay, the gate of the temple is liminal space. Morning and evening, liminal time. Morning's not night or day. Evening's not day or night. It's neither and yet both. It's a unique period it's it's a crack in in time and a crack in space it, it uh, morning and evening are the cosmic hinges of the day and so if we're aware of this, it makes getting up at dawn very significant, um, especially if you can get outside and And look at the stars just before they leave, and the sun just as it comes up. Same thing in the evening. It can be a special spiritual experience. Um, Okay, so don't do that, that, Chuck, don't do that. Um, It's called the tent of meeting, all right? So at at special times and special places of the tent, they meet God. Exodus chapter 33. It tells us about the tent of meeting, and it says that when Moses would would go out to it, that it was first pitched away from the camp. It's like this is holy; um, it can't be close to everyone else's tent. That Moses would go out and he'd stand at the entrance of the tent, and uh, and God's glory would rest on the entrance, and that the people would stand with their children at the entrance of their tents. And they would bow down in their own personal liminal space as Moses entered the tent of meeting. Excuse me. When I read my Bible in the morning, I'll open it and pray. And I'll remind myself that I'm going from my normal, busy thoughts into sacred space, where thoughts are God's thoughts, his word given to me. And just that moment between not reading and beginning to read is my transition into the sacred, as far as God allows or wants. When I think about it, I have a special feeling about it. I would call it a feeling of reverence. Sometimes in doing this, I'll even cross myself because I have that sense of reverence and I just want to acknowledge God's presence in some, in some way. So this is the smooth liminal space when it's intentional and we fully understand the transition and where we're we're going from and going to. But there are other liminal spaces in our lives, transitions, that come through tragedy. And we don't know that space for what it is. We only know the pain in the moment. And that pain is part of the transition. When we get to the other side, we will not be the same people where we were before. Some of us, and I'm thinking of two people in particular. One of them is my wife, Barbara. Some of us have a hard time with the holidays, especially Christmas. And Barbara lost her mom a few years ago just shortly after Christmas. She survived Christmas, but she was in the hospital at the time. And so Barbara's never been quite the same since then. Um, she wasn't decimated by it, she grieved, and that grief returns on occasion in surprising moments, but especially around Christmas time. So these Tragic transitions also make us different people. Now here, um, we're not in charge. We don't know what's ever going to come of this. We don't know why this has happened. Um, And so the potential for change could be positive or negative. Uh, My dad used to say that these kinds of experiences either make us bitter or better. And um, I guess he was saying it depends on how you respond to it, which is exactly what my dad would think. I like to think it depends how, how much grace I have as I go through it. Um, that's the only thing that's going to work in my favor, because my freedom of will, my, my power to choose, usually goes downhill, um, because I don't know any better. All right, so... Jacob's first rite of passage was when his father Isaac blessed him. This was an important rite of passage in Israel. Father blessing uh, his son. Now, typically, the father's best blessing, the double portion of his blessing, went to the oldest son. Jacob was not the oldest son, he was younger than his twin brother by minutes. And these were two characters. Uh, I think that Esau probably would have played football, and Jacob would have taken a home economics course. <laughs> He'd be the only guy in the class. You know. So uh, he, he, we're told that he was around his mother living in, in the tents, and his brother was a hunter. And Jacob actually swindled his brother from the birthright that should have been his and the blessing that should have been his. And uh, Jacob was... Well, actually, his mom was kind of pushing him into this. She favored uh, Jacob, whereas Isaac favored Esau. And uh, Jacob played on his father's uh, poor eyesight, very poor eyesight, and presented himself as Esau, got Esau's blessing. And Esau was rather upset about this. Um, In fact, uh, the only comfort he could find was these scenarios of Fratricide, that is, murdering his brother. And he said, okay, I'm, I'm just going to wait till dad dies, and then I'm going to kill him. And uh, Isaac's wife uh, heard about this. She went to to uh, Jacob and said, you better, you better sca- uh, scram, because your brother wants to kill you. So Jacob is on the move. His first night away from home, he's, he's traveled uh, some distance, and he's he's in a, a desert area. And a, there's a lot of emphasis on where he spent this first night. He came to a certain place, took a stone from the place, lay down in the place. Um, it's unusual how. One word is repeated in such a short span. So we're really focused on the place. The storyteller wants us to get this place. It's almost like when you read it, you start getting an an eerie feeling, like, oh, all right. This is a, what do you call it, convergence (laughs) um, zone. This was just a rest stop. But something big happened. Will you forgive me? Uh, a professional opinion. Um, I can't stand it when preachers frequently say, "Now watch this." Now watch this. You know, the first time they say it, you, you know, you're motivated to pay closer attention. But some preachers will say, "Now watch this." What, you know, what happens next or what comes next? They say it so often that you become immune to it, and and you realize, well, it's not going to be that big because last time it wasn't that big. So, yeah. I'm here, uh, I'll hear it. Maybe it'll be cool, maybe not. Uh, but it, it gets overused. And, and, and though that bothers me, our storyteller uses some of this. Um, when Jacob falls asleep that night, watch this. He dreamed a ladder. Watch this. Angels were going up and down the ladder. Watch this, Yahweh, the Lord, was above the ladder. Behold, behold, behold. The storyteller is saying, look at this, visualize this. This dream unfolds and there's a stairway to heaven and angels are, are what? They're in transition, they're in liminal space between heaven and earth. The dream itself is, is the transition of, Jacob's rite of passage. It's, it's a, from home with his family to this new location where he's going. And here in this transition, God gives him a promise and the blessing of his grandfather, Abraham. When he woke up, Jacob says, the Lord is in this place. How awesome is this place, and he called the place Bethel, or Bethel, the house of God. So three times at the beginning of this episode and three times at the end, like an envelope, the whole story is encapsulated in the place of this liminal experience in which God reveals himself to Jacob and makes promises. Okay. Esau did not bother to chase Jacob, be too much trouble. Um, Jacob's out of the picture now, so Esau doesn't worry himself about him. Um, but what comes next? Well, Jacob finds his way to uh, his grandfather's family and, and relatives in Padan Aram, and uh, they take him in. He falls in love with uh, Rachel, and works a deal with Laban, her father. I'll work for you seven years. You give me Rachel as a wife. And uh, Laban says, that's good. Well, what we have then is this going back and forth of two tricksters trying to outdo each other. On the night of, of Jacob's wedding, he goes into his tent, to enjoy conjugal rights with his wife, wakes up in the morning, it's not Rachel, it's her older, less lovely sister, Leah. And he goes to Laban and says, What have you done to me? And Laban says, It's cool, it's cool. It's just not the custom in our culture to give the younger daughter before the older daughter. You know, we really had to give you the older daughter first. But work another seven years, you can have Rachel. So he does. Uh, And then Jacob connives to end up with the best of Laban's sheep, his flocks, the healthiest. And. the most fit. So uh, each one is trying to outmaneuver the other the whole time until Jacob infuriates his his brother-in-law, brothers-in-law, and raises Laban's ire, and he has to run from Laban with his wife and his children and all that he owns, his flocks and everything. And he takes off. He he gives himself a two-day head start. It's not enough. Laban does chase after Jacob, and he says, "Everything you have, everything I look at, I, my daughters, my children. He, as the patriarch, he had rights to his grandchildren, that trumped, bad word, um, in, in this case, um, uh, Jacob's, uh, Jacob's rights." Uh, he says, everything I see, my sheep, everything, it's all mine, and, and you've absconded with them. But God came to me in a dream last night and told me not to hurt you or to say anything either good or bad. <laughs> and that gives Jacob some confidence. Well, Okay, he can't kill me. You know, God's not going to let him kill me. So then he blasts Laban. But <clears throat> immediately following their confrontation, Jacob has his next big encounter with God. Jacob went on his way, and the angels of God met him. And when Jacob saw them, he said, this is God's camp. So he called the name of that place Manah Ahim, which means two camps, him and his family and possessions and the angels of God, which his eyes were opened to see them. Now we're two camps, and he, he lived in the safety of the guardians who watched over him in his camp. But where is Jacob going? He's going back into Esau's territory. Esau doesn't have to chase him now. Jacob's coming back. And uh, he, he's been gone something like 20 years. Well, it has been 20 years. And he did not know how Esau would react when he saw him again. So he sent a few of his servants ahead for reconnaissance. And they come back, and he says, well, did you see my brother Esau? Yes. And he's coming to meet you. And 400 men are with him. (laughs) That's not a good sign. When you travel with 400 men in in the Hebrew scriptures, you're usually going into battle. Um, Esau's carried a grudge this whole time. And again, the trickster goes to work. And he, he works out a system to mollify his brother before they meet each other. But just before the meeting, the night before, they're at a border between two territories. And the border is marked by the Jabbok River. And Jacob sends his family across the Jabbok. And he stays on the old side. Now, the Jabbok becomes, this whole event becomes liminal. A transition, and before he crosses the river, and I, why did he stay behind? What's, what's he doing behind? Do you remember Billy Goat's gruff? <laughs> uh, what's the problem? We can't cross the bridge because it's guarded, so we work out a way to remove the guards so when we can get across. Or, or better yet, Monty Python's the holy grail. Uh, uh, stop. No one passes this bridge by me unless he answers my questions three. What's your favorite color? What's the capital of Assyria? (laughs) It gets tougher. So um, this is a motif in legends, fairy tales, um, myths, of a border crossing and someone guarding the border. And the hero has to get across that border somehow, either outwitting or defeating the guard. We are told, and this is weird because out of nowhere, this stranger comes and is wrestling with Jacob. We're not told if the stranger walks up to, to Jacob and has this little wooden chip on his shoulder and Jacob goes, stink. Or if, um, you know, you know, they bump into each other by accident and Jacob says, you son of a motherless goat. Um, or whatever you know the insult would be, but they're wrestling, they're wrestling all night, and the stranger has to be out of there before the sun rises. And says to Jacob, "Let go of me, the sun is almost up." But Jacob refuses. I won't let go unless you bless me. And the stranger says, "What's your name?" He says, "Jacob." Which really is the story of his life. Uh, it means that he grabs. Whatever he, he wants, whatever he's after, he, he grasps it, whether it's his or not. The first thing he grabbed was his brother's heel as they were being born. And so they said, oh, let's call him Jacob. He grabs the heel uh, you know, of what he wants. So um, this stranger says, no more will your name be Jacob. From now on, it will be Israel. Israel. Because like a prince of God, you have wrestled with God and prevailed. <laughs> he prevailed with weeping and begging, but he he still prevailed. So Jacob went on his way. Oh, pardon me. Uh, so Jacob called the name of the place Peniel, saying, I have seen God face to face, and yet my life has been delivered. Okay, so this is, for him, an encounter with God. It's another liminal experience when he had to wrestle his way through in order to get beyond it. Jacob um, moves into Canaan. Things are eased between him and Esau. He moves into Canaan and settles near uh, the city of Shechem. And for the first time, it looks like he's going to live in peace and safety. But while there, his daughter is raped by a local. Her brothers retaliate to defend the family's honor but they go too far and even Jacob is disgusted by what they do now he's worried that all the cities around that area are going to band together and attack him so he has to run away again he's getting older he's got a lot of stuff to take all i want is this chair <laughs> all i want is this chair and This paperweight, that's all I want. The chair and the paperweight. Oh, and I want the lamp. All I want. Okay, if you saw the jerk, I'm doing a poor Steve Martin imitation, but uh, the idea is he's got a lot of stuff that he's got to travel. It's not easy anymore, and it's probably not that much fun. Um, This time, his encounter with God is not that dramatic. He just gets a word from God, and we don't know how that comes to him. Just gets a word from God, and God says, return to Bethel. Return to the place of that experience of heaven, the angels going up and down. And the Lord at the top, return to that experience, that moment, to that place, to that, that liminal time. When we catch up to uh, Jacob after that, he has settled in Canaan, But he's suffered greatly. Jacob ends up with 12 sons from two wives and two mistresses or concubines. And uh, his favorite was the firstborn of his wife, wife, Rachel, who he loved and adored. And he treats Joseph special. He gives him a special coat, and we don't know if it was many colors or had long sleeves or whatever. But it was a sign of his specialness. This is what royalty wore. Um, the, the children of King David wore this kind of coat. Not a, None of his other sons. The, you know, they're working class, but Joseph. And I think Joseph was a little bit spoiled, personally. It's just opinion, though I would argue certain scriptures. <laughs> no, I wouldn't. Um, and he tells his brothers, I had a dream. And in his dream, basically, the symbols tell them they're all bowing down to him. I and mean, he's dumb enough to tell them. They already don't like him. They're already jealous and envious. And he tells them, I have this dream. You're all bowing down to me. <laughs> and uh, they hate him even more for his dreams, we're told. Uh, he has one dream where his mom and dad are bowing down to him, too. And Jacob rebukes him, but then thinks about it. His brothers end up hating him, but Jacob was thinking, wow. What a strange dream. Why would he even tell us that? So um, his brothers conspire to get rid of him. And they deceive their dad. It's interesting because you can see parallels between the way Jacob deceived his father uh, with a dead goat and the way they deceived their father with the blood of a dead goat. And they put the blood on Jacob's wonderful coat and take it to their dad and say, dad, look at this and identify, does this look like your son's coat? And Jacob says, oh, no, I've lost my son Jacob. A wild beast has eaten him, and he's devastated. And they cannot cheer him up. I wonder if at, if at any moment during this, they thought, what have we done to dad? We, we've, we've killed him. And that's what he says. I'm going to go into Sheol uh, you know, with my gray head into the ground in mourning for him. I'm never going to recover from this pain, he says. So um, a dozen years have passed. Now, what actually happened to Joseph is they, they did not kill him. They threw him in a pit. They're going to let him die of exposure or starvation. But then one of them says, hey, you know, we can make some money off him. They see a caravan of traders, and they say, we can make some money off him. Why, you know, why just get rid of him if he's worth something? They sell him as a slave, and he's taken to Egypt. And if you know the story of... of uh, of Joseph in Egypt. He is sold as a slave. He becomes a servant to one of the commanders of the pharaoh. He, everything in the commander's house prospers. Um, but he is thrown out of that post and into prison because of a false accusation. He's in prison, interprets two dreams. One is the king's cupbearer. The other is the king's baker, which makes me think that the king may have gotten some kind of stomach ache from something he ate. And it's either the baker who made it or the cupbearer who poisoned him and handed him his cup. So they're both in, in prison. They both have dreams. Joseph interprets them. And as a result of interpreting those dreams, it eventually, two years later, comes to Pharaoh's attention. There's a guy in his prison who can interpret his dreams. So he, he comes before Pharaoh, interprets his dream, seven years of plenty, seven years of famine, And uh, so what you should do, Pharaoh, is choose someone wise enough to administrate your kingdom so that the seven years of plenty, all of the excess grain is gathered and stored in Egypt's granaries. And then the seven years of famine, we'll still have grain. We'll still be able to feed our people. Well, uh, Pharaoh says, and who is so wise as you who has the spirit of the gods in him? Uh, I appoint you to that position. And Joseph becomes the most powerful man in Egypt, second only to the Pharaoh. Well, back to, uh, meanwhile, back at the ranch, Jacob um, and his, this cracks me up. He he talks to his 10 sons, the 10 older sons, uh, leaving Benjamin out of it. He, He says, Why are you looking at each other? I hear there's grain in Egypt. In other words, they're all starving, and they're all looking at each other. And it reminds me of a Bugs Bunny cartoon. I think it's Bugs Bunny, where he's on a desert island with someone else, and and the other person begins to look like a hot dog to Bugs, and (laughs) Bugs looks like a hamburger to the other. And I'm thinking that Jacob's sons are looking at each other and going, you know. (laughs) He looks like he's got some good meat on him. So um, he sends them to Egypt to buy Grain. Well, all the foreigners who come to Egypt to buy grain have to appear uh, before Joseph. I don't know why Joseph doesn't delegate this, unless he is waiting for his brothers. He sees them come. He recognizes them. He's been in, in Egypt you know, a dozen years or more. He looks like an Egyptian. He's this incredibly powerful person in Egypt. They don't know it's him. And he talks to them through an interpreter, but he understands everything that they say to each other. And he accuses them of espionage, takes Simeon, has him put in prison, bound in front of their eyes and put in prison, and then um, tells them, uh, he interrogates them, finds out that they have a younger brother, which he already knew, because he's his only full brother, Benjamin. And uh, he says, well, you're lying to me, you're spies, unless you come back with your your brother. That will be the only proof that you're genuine. Then he orders his servants to fill their sacks with grain and return their money that they came with to buy grain, return that in the mouth of their sacks, and they go on their way. They get to their first rest stop. One of the brothers opens up his sack, and there's his money. And he goes, oh no, what's this? And they find that all of them have money in the top of their sacks. They've all, all their money's been returned. And they're not happy about this. They're terrified. They have no idea what's, what's going on here. And when they get to Jacob, they say, we can't go back and get more grain unless we bring Benjamin. He says, no way. I've lost Joseph. And Simeon, he's in Egypt. He's in prison. I've lost him. I'm not going to lose Benjamin. He's all I've got left. Of Rachel, and if he dies, life, life is not worth living for me. I, I'll die, too. Or if he goes off, that's the end of me. So they stall. They use up all the grain they've got. And he says, look, you guys, you have to go back and get some more grain. They said, no, no, Dad, not without Benjamin. So he argues, but finally relents. And then he says to them, carry a present down to the man, a little balm, a little honey, gum, myrrh, pistachio, nuts, and almonds. Take double the money with you. Carry back with you the money that was returned in the mouth of your sacks. Perhaps it was an oversight. All right, now do you get it? Now we understand this passage. Perhaps it was an oversight. Okay. Uh, long story short, the next time the brothers arrive in Egypt, Joseph messes with him a little bit. <laughs> he tortures him. And then he, uh, and then he says, no, come on, I'm just kidding. It's just a joke. I'm Joseph. And then they're really terrified. <laughs> when, they, when they realize it is Joseph, and he has all this power. He can get back at them so well. And, uh, and he says, I'm Joseph. And, and, uh, and he sees Benjamin. And he hugs him, and kisses him. They both weep. And he says, he says, go home, get dad, bring him and everything he has here to Egypt I'm going to take care of you. God sent me here for this reason, to save all your lives. So uh, Jacob is on his way to Egypt now, and he gets to Beersheba. Beersheba Beersheba, is the northernmost part of the Negev. That is this desert region that goes down into the Sinai Peninsula. So this is another border crossing, all right? And he stops there, and he offers sacrifices to the Lord. And God reassures him that he's with him, and that he'll see Joseph, and uh, that his life will really come together in Egypt. All right. When Jacob first hears about Simeon being in prison and, and Benjamin has to go back with him. He he says, why did you even tell him that you have a brother? He says, all this has come against me. All this has come against me. He doesn't know, oh, no, all this has come for you, to bless you, to care for you, to make the last years of your life truly peaceful and safe. He has no way of knowing that. And when he sends his son back, he says, take double your money. Take the money for the grain, but also take the money that was given back to you. Perhaps it was a mistake. It wasn't a mistake. It wasn't an oversight. Joseph returned their money intentionally. He did not want their money. He did not need their money. Egypt did not need their money. The people of Egypt paid for grain until they had no more money. And they went to Joseph and said, We're not going to lie to you. We have no more money. No, Joseph had it all. Egypt, the, you know, the Pharaoh had it all now. They said, So we, all we have left are our own lives and our property. So we'll give you our property and our lives if you feed us. In other words, we'll be Pharaoh's servants for the rest of our lives. Um, So Joseph is taking care of them. He's, He's protecting them from starvation and preparing even better things for them. Joseph realized God's hand in all this, but Jacob only saw disaster. He saw tragedy looming before him. Perhaps it was an oversight. That's Jacob trying to make sense of his circumstances. Maybe it was just a clerical error. Maybe it was just a mistake. It wasn't any mistake. He doesn't know that. He has no way of knowing that. He only knows what's right in front of him. You guys, we only know what's right in front of us. We have no idea what's coming out of this. A seed is planted. We don't know that. But it's going to grow into something wonderful for us. But we don't see that wonderful thing. We only see right now. And right now, it might be behind on bills. Right now, it might be the transmission went out. Right now, it might be trouble in paradise, trouble in the family. That's all we see. And we're trying to make sense of it. And and, and we're guessing, because that's about all that we can do. God was with Jacob through his whole life, especially from his first rite of passage on. There at Bethel, the first time, God said, Behold, I am with you and will keep you wherever you go, for I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. God was there all along. But Jacob wasn't always aware of God watching out for him. He was left to, to figure out things on his own. And more than once, he got it wrong. But even in spite of his manipulations and, and tricks, God blessed him because God committed himself to be with him and to bless him. So whatever Jacob did, God still made his will produce the, the results that he wanted. All right. What, what am I saying? I don't know. I'm lost at this point. Um, I, I guess I just want to be with it. But, but can you see that life was no easier for Jacob than it is for you or me? We think, well, you know, God was with him, and he had these wonderful encounters, and God appeared to him, all this stuff. You know, he had it easy. You know, he knew all this stuff was going for him. No. He thought everything was going against him. Even his encounters did not give him him an advantage in deciphering his circumstances. His, His surmising was still wrong. But these liminal experiences allowed him opportunity to reconnect with God. So even if he'd get out there or he'd be in fear or, or panic. He was, he was in panic when his brother Esau was coming for him. He, and he prayed this beautiful prayer. God, I'm not worthy of all of your mercies that you've shown me. 20 years ago, I crossed this, this river. All I had in my, was, was my staff in my hand. And now I've come back with wives and children and flocks and all this wealth. He says, but God, I greatly fear my brother. And then he asks for God's help and protection because he did not know what the outcome was going to be. God gave him opportunities to reconnect. In fact, God said, return to Bethel. Go back there and and reconnect with me. You said you'd go back and, and that you would worship me there? Do it. Reconnect. Jesus Christ is the ultimate liminality liminal being. When Nathaniel first met Jesus, Jesus read his, his mail to him. He said, you're Nathaniel, an, an Israelite in whom there's no guile. He so said, how do you know me? And Jesus tells him how he knows him. Nathaniel says, you're, you're the Messiah of Israel. And Jesus says, you believe? Because I said, I saw you under a fig tree. You'll see greater things than this. From now on, you will see heaven open And the angels of God descending on the Son of Man. What's he saying? You're going to see what Jacob saw. But now it's going to be me where you see that happening. I am that transitional space between heaven and earth, between God and humankind. In Second Corinthians five seventeen, Paul says, For if anyone is in Christ, they are a new creature. In Christ, in that liminal person, Christ, that, that transitionary person, we become new creatures. Old things, the, the the preliminal passed away. New things are coming in Christ. So we return to Jesus because in him, everything makes sense, at least as much as we need it to. If you can't see where life is taking you, don't panic. Now, I'm telling you now because when those things come and you do panic, and I say don't panic, you'll say forget you. (laughs) But I'm telling you now, you, you don't have to panic. You aren't alone. Draw a deep breath and hold it for a moment. And that will be your liminal space between that breath and and exhaling. Then hold it before you inhale. you see how easily anywhere and anytime you can have a taste of of liminality? Hold it. Liminal. Exhale. God is here. God is in this space that he's ordained this morning and evening space, this, this gateway, this threshold space. You are in transition. Recognize the sacredness of the moment. Would you stand with me, please? I love you guys. You're so patient with me. Um, even when I take you into far off places and accidentally leave you there. Um, <laughs> I don't mean to, but um, Jim is not here today. He's not feeling well. You might uh, remember him in your prayers. Uh, He keeps a very busy schedule. Now may the Lord bless us, keep away all evil, and lead us into eternal life. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Where will that be? It's at the Catholic Church is here. You have to RSVP to it. It's free. We have to send the things. So if anybody wants to go, come and see me and I'll let you know how to, how to do it. Great. Okay. That's St. Edward's. St. Edward's Church. 7 okay. All right. Great. So talk to Duke if you want to get the lowdown on the homeless. Okay. God bless.